welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Today, for episode 294, Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy rejoins me on the show. And we're talking about a range of things in the macro world and the impact onto Bitcoin. So we're talking about CPI, government debt, oil and gas, the bull case, as well as stable coins and the Lightning Network. So we cover a range of things. I think you'll really enjoy this one. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys and instant buys. They've got fast setup and it's really cheap to automate your stacking for US customers. They are also available internationally over wire as well. Swan specifically take a focus on education and content. They are Bitcoin only, so there's no confusion with altcoins. This is the best place to send pre-coiners and new coiners. And for those of you who are high net worth or business and corporate, there is Swan Private. With Swan Private, you're getting direct access to the Swan Private team and you'll get a dedicated Bitcoin account expert available for one-on-one calls. So to sign up with Swan, go to swanbitcoin.com slash levera. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can lend stable coins or borrow against your Bitcoin globally and anonymously. So with stable coins like USDT, you can earn extra income by lending them out with an average of 25% APR. On the other hand, if you have Bitcoin and you need some fiat liquidity, well, you can borrow against that. And you still hold one key in the two of three multi-signature controlling your Bitcoin during that loan period. HodlHodl does not hold your funds. So Lend at HodlHodl is peer-to-peer lending and borrowing directly between users. So you sign up on the platform, you set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. Are you interested in getting involved with Bitcoin mining? CompassMining.io are here to help you do that. So with Compass Mining, you can choose an ASIC machine. They've got Wattminer and Antminer equipment available. Then you select a hosting facility, which has been vetted by the team at Compass Mining, and then you can join a mining pool. Once your ASIC is installed in that chosen facility, the team will configure your machine to the mining pool of your choice. And then after that, you're receiving Bitcoin. So with Compass Mining, you can tap into economies of scale and access reasonably priced hardware and cheap industrial power rates. So go to compassmining.io and start mining Bitcoin today. On to the show with Lynn. Lynn, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be back. So, Lynn, I saw you were participating in The B Word, uh, and uh, there was a segment that you did, and I thought that was a great segment. I know you've been uh, doing a lot of great work recently. You had an oil and gas piece as well. Uh, But I also wanted to start on, obviously, for a Bitcoiner, inflation. So there was recently a big CPI print of 5.4% on an annualized basis for the U.S., So I'd love to start there. What are your initial thoughts on that? Yeah, so it came in a little bit higher than I I was expecting. But overall, I've been in the more inflationary camp. So there's, you know, if you follow uh, uh, people in the macro world, there are some there have been some people that are expecting more types of disinflation, uh, whereas there are a number of us are expecting a higher degree of inflation. And so overall, this is this is roughly going align along with what I expected in terms of the types of uh, outcomes we get from the policies we've seen over the past year to 18 months. Uh, and so basically, we got a very high CPI print in the US. We got, uh, I believe it was 5.4%. Uh, even other measures of inflation uh, generally came in hotter than than uh, economists were expecting. And, you know, there's certain categories that are contributing to that, right? So basically, 
my overall framework for the type of inflation we're getting is that this is a very fiscal driven type of inflation. So because of the large amount of stimulus we've had, uh, we've increased the broad money supply by quite a bit, which is different than just increasing base money or Fed balance sheet. We're actually increasing the broad money supply. So so pe- uh, money that's available for people's checking accounts, savings accounts, currency in circulation. Uh, and so when you get that uh, increase in broad money supply, we've improved people's uh, demand, right? So we've given them money they didn't otherwise have, and so they can go out and expend it. But we haven't increased the amount of goods and services uh, by a corresponding amount. And so we're specifically running into bottlenecks wherever there's a, a supply constraint. So an example where we're not running into bottlenecks is like men's uh, uh, suits, for example. Uh, they're actually it's still in deflating. Uh, and so there's no issue there. But there's an issue in certain things like semiconductors. So that's that's going up the supply chain into automobiles and especially used automobiles uh, because there's there's constraint in new automobile production. And so that raises the cost of existing uh, 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 cars and, and, and light vehicles. Uh, and we're also, of course, seeing uh, energy prices warm up. Uh, we've seen commodity prices, uh, you know, some of them spiked and came back down due to very specific bottlenecks, but we generally have a higher price level of commodities than we had in the past several years. Uh, and so one of the things I'm looking at going forward is that a lot of this inflation happened without rent increases going up by a dramatic amount. Uh, and yet we've had, of course, house price uh, inflation uh, and, the, and the cost of building uh, materials go up. Uh, and so when you when you look later this autumn, uh, I think the next kind of leg of this inflation will be uh, uh, rent driven uh, in large part. And we also have to see what happens with wages because we're also seeing a, a labor shortage uh, in certain industries. And so overall, I, you know that you know the year over year comparison is still looking at say a, a somewhat of a disinflationary period from last year. That kind of that May to June period was was you know prices took a dip. Uh, but as we move out of that, uh, you know, the year-over-year comparison gets a little bit harder. So we could see that we could see that year-over-year figure go down a little bit. Uh, however, you know, we still have these these other underlying things like rents. I think that are going to kind of keep that elevated and probably above the expectations for a while. Mm, yeah. So great point you're making there around how money is not neutral and therefore inflation is not necessarily equal across every different kind of product or industry or what we're looking at. And so, as you rightly say, the price of some things is still going down, but the price of other things, quite important things like semiconductors, is still rising. And so, I think the interesting question as well is now, historically, people from the Austrian camp have been sort of saying, oh, very, very high inflation, but it could also be that it might not be like hyperinflation, it just might be like slightly higher inflation than what we've historically seen in the more 3% range. Is that essentially your view that we're going to see high but not crazy high inflation going forward in the in the sort of medium term? Uh, yes, that's how I'm viewing it. But there are there are upcoming decision points to watch. And so, you know, overall, my view is that the, the amount of inflation will partially correspond to how much fiscal stimulus we get. Uh, and so we already had a certain amount. And that is still working its way through the system, especially as we come out of lockdowns in some cases, uh, while some areas are still in lockdown, so that's actually still holding down certain things like energy prices. They're not as high as they could be if there was actually, you know, say a full unlocking. Uh, but basically, you know, we have certain constraints still in place. Uh, but, you know, th- and this is still rippling through the system. So we have to see what happens with wages. We have to see what happens with rents. Uh, but for let's say, for example, just fiscal stimulus stops right now. Uh, because of how much debt is in the system, I think we would see those levels come back down uh, to, to some extent. Uh, however, if we do more rounds of fiscal stimulus, 
uh, then we'll probably get ongoing inflation. Of course, that comes with certain trade-offs. Uh, and so if they don't do fiscal stimulus because there's so much they, they build up so much debt in the system, then you have more default risk and recession risk. Uh, but if you do that stimulus, uh, then you, uh, you run the risk of having another burst of inflation and continuing to run hot. And so there's there, there's kind of a couple decision points that I'm monitoring to see how long I would expect this period to go and how high it could reach. Yeah, good explanation there. And so I'm also curious then how you think that will play out into other markets. And I think an important one is the bond market because historically it has been seen like bonds were the defensive play. And yet now because of inflation rising, it means the real return for a bond investor is coming down. So how do you see that? And also there is uh, that recent, um, I believe it was the 10 year where there was a recent uh, rise in the uh, interest rate there. So how do you believe the inflation story coming is going to play out into the bond market? Uh, So overall, yeah, this is not a very attractive environment to be holding bonds or cash. Uh, and so that's one of those things where even in a moderate inflation environment, however you want to define that, let's say three to five percent inflation rather than say you know fifteen percent inflation. Let's say you have three three percent, four percent, five percent. If interest rates are like zero or one percent, uh, you're you're getting devalued on your purchasing power uh, by holding that. Uh, and of course, there are other ways to measure inflation, right? So there's there are arguments about how accurate those those CPI measurements are. So you know the real measure could be somewhat above those figures, and yet your rates are still zero to one percent. And you're getting you're getting devalued, and so that's the, that's one of the bigger challenges. Uh, we also, you know, one of the, the complexities is that historically the market uses bond signals uh, to judge what's happening in the economy. And so, for example, when you have a steep yield curve uh, and bond yields are rising on the long end of the curve, that generally means that the economy expects more inflation, more growth, right? Because they want to go into riskier assets, uh, and so that's that's you know up to, up to a certain point, that's a good thing. Uh, towards the end of a business cycle, historically, we started to see that 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 long-end bonds start to go down uh, because the market is starting to sense that there's less growth coming uh, and that they they prefer to hold some of these higher, longer-duration treasury assets. They're expecting the central bank to cut interest rates on the short end of the curve, and so they're they're going ahead and buying some of those long-duration assets. Uh, now, the tricky thing now is that because the central banks are large buyers of those treasuries. Uh, that's basically adding a, a kind of a like a, a complex signal to those bond markets. And so we've seen, for example, that you know we started to see bond yields rising earlier this year uh, in anticipation of higher inflation and things like that, especially when we saw you know copper and and, uh, and lumber uh, spiking. Uh, but then we've seen some of a, of a cool off in a, in a handful of those commodities, and we've also seen bond yields uh, come back down part of the way. So bond yields have actually cooled off, even though inflation's higher this month than it was last month. Bond yields are actually lower than they were last month. And so we've seen kind of conflicting signals. And so some market participants are, are expecting that uh, they're saying, oh, the bond market knows this is transitory. Uh, it's looking down for inflation to come down. Uh, but that's, you know, that's with the caveat that the Fed is you know, still the largest buyer of treasuries. Uh, and that's true for many central banks around the world. Uh, and so the ECBs, you know, the, the biggest buyer of, of of those sovereigns. And that's true for for most most developed countries in the world where they're kind of eating their own cooking. There's an old quote like, you know, the measurement becomes a target. It ceases to be an accurate uh, measurement. And so we're kind of in that sort of field with bonds at the moment. Right. And so when you add that on with this notion that government debt is very, very high, as you have been speaking about, and many others have been commenting on this idea. What does it look like? Is it 
you know, is it, are we going to be in a place where rates have to rise back up because the private market is going to reassert itself? Or is, do you think it's more like because the governments are so active in the government debt bonds, government debt markets, that they're going to keep the rates down effectively uh, because of all the central bank and other operations going on to basically keep the rates low? My base case is that yields would remain pretty low regardless of inflation, at least for a period of time. Uh, and so I think that's a danger that market participants are not realizing that, you know, they they have this kind of implicit assumption that if inflation gets too hot, uh, you know, interest rates will go up as well. Uh, and that'll cool off inflation like we saw Volcker do in the late 70s. Uh, and, you know, I, I think a better model for this environment is the 1940s. And that's because in the 70s, uh, you know, uh, in the United States and many other countries, uh, because at that point, we had already inflated a lot of debt away. Uh, uh, and we, we also grew pretty considerably. That was a big period for productivity in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, you know, we, we, we had this environment of pretty low public debt as a percentage of GDP and pretty low private debt as a percentage of GDP, at least in most countries, uh, including the United States, which is my kind of cleanest data set. Uh, and uh, so when you had inflation for a variety of reasons, uh, they were able to raise rates uh, to, uh, you know, keep those, uh, you know, to, to try to keep inflation in check. Uh, and it, it put the economy into a recession. But, you know, they didn't cause like mass insolvencies because debt was pretty low. But in the 1940s, uh, you know, because of the war and because of other factors, uh, let's use the United States as an example, we had like 130 uh, percent debt to GDP, just just the federal debt. And so they couldn't pay high interest rates. Uh, and so despite the fact that you had inflation that was roughly as bad as the 1970s, uh, but for different reasons, uh, the Fed still held rates literally at, at like zero. And they actually went a step further and they even capped long duration bonds. Uh, and so they were, they, and the way they did that, uh, they maintained that peg was they were willing to print money and buy any bonds that try to go over that interest rate. So they were basically the buyer of last resort that said, we will buy any number of bonds at this price point. So don't try to sell them over that price point. Uh, and they were they were able to do that, but then of course the you know the so they're they're able to uh, have that mechanism inflate debt away, uh, prevent government finances from getting out of control. Uh, but then the release valve ends up being the the value of the currency. And so if you're holding cash or you're holding bonds, you're you're getting zero percent, one percent, two percent, whatever the case may be. While inflation could be three, four, five, ten, you know, in that environment uh, in the 40s, the highest inflation print was 19 percent year over year while interest rates were zero and long duration bonds were like two and a half percent. Yeah. So essentially there are a lot of people getting <laughs> robbed in real terms. So they are sitting there in bonds thinking, oh, I'm just making zero or 1%, but in real terms, purchasing power terms, they're, they're really losing out. And so I think that may drive a lot of bond investors and out of bonds where they have the ability to. So obviously there are some people who for regulatory reasons or for some other kind of market technical plumbing reason that they have to hold bonds. The other people who choose to hold bonds, they may not, not choose to do that. And maybe some of those people will come into Bitcoin. Some of those people will go into uh, potentially equities as well because they're chasing for some kind of yield. They want some kind of return. What's your view on that? Yeah, I think we're see we're already seeing that to some extent. And so I just I just in my newsletter I just posted a couple days ago uh, in the United States we have uh, households have record high equity allocations as a percentage of their total assets, uh, and so they've never held more equities than they have now. Now part of that's just because 
they were holding equities that then became very expensive, right? So equities are at had historically high valuations by many metrics. But in addition, you know, we also saw ever since that March crash, we saw a lot of uh, retail enthusiasm that hasn't existed for the past five to 10 years, right? Pretty much going back, we have to go back to the dot-com bubble to find the last time that there's so much retail enthusiasm for holding equities. Uh, and so we are seeing pretty high allocations of equities. We're seeing people willing to buy real estate. Uh, and of course, we also saw, you know, periods of people going into gold and silver, people going into Bitcoin, people going into, you know, Dogecoin, like all sorts of things that, they, that they're going into. Uh, rather than hold their money in, in in cash or bonds. But yeah, like you point out, there are some pools of capital that for regulatory or technical reasons are still buying those those treasuries. Uh, but generally, you're, you know, you're seeing pensions buy them. You're seeing certain international, uh, 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 you know, types of uh, uh, central banks buy them. Uh, but you're not seeing a, a lot of kind of households want to own a lot of treasuries at the current time. Now, there's also still some, you know, locked up in risk parity funds. There's still some locked up in target date uh, types of kind of index approach uh, type of investments. You know, there's even a case that a, a tactical trader might not might want to have some cash and bonds in case you get kind of a deflationary kind of, you know, move that they could they could rotate some capital back into those other types of assets. But yeah, basically, depending on the types of uh, you know, mindset of the investor, we are seeing them prefer real assets. And that could mean very different things for very different people. Yeah, good explanation there. And quite a balanced uh, point of view, I think. And so the broader situation that we're living in now is that governments are in such high levels of debt. And the perhaps the prevailing view, if we went back 10 or 20 years, it might have been more like, oh, governments will eventually outgrow that debt where they're going to encourage more people to have children and help the demographic problem that way. And therefore, over time, we're just going to grow this out and it won't be an issue. But now it seems that we are actually getting to levels that it would require just ridiculous sustained growth levels. We're talking 12% or something in that range, which is just crazy to sustain that kind of level, which when most of the time a big developed economy is getting something in the 2 to 3% range growth. Um, so I think... Where I'm going with this is this idea that it seems that as central banks and governments generally don't want the party to end on their watch, potentially the quote unquote least pain way that they, from their point of view, can get out of this is to keep the economy in financial repression for longer. So is that aligned with your view or how are you seeing this? That's how I view it. Yeah. And and there have been a number of people that have seen this coming well before the pandemic. And the pandemic, uh, I would argue brought forward maybe five years of this type of thing into like one year, uh, you know, not the pandemic and then also the lockdowns, the whole thing. Uh, and so part of my framework came from uh, uh, reading the research of Ray Dalio over the past 10 years, and then also, do, you know, taking those seeds of research and then doing my own research with it. Uh, and so he, he, he forced, like foresaw a lot of this happening. And then in addition, back in 2019, there was actually a paper released by BlackRock uh, and so the you know the world's largest asset manager, and then actually they they were in that paper they're advised by Stanley Fisher, uh, who is the former Fed vice chair, uh, and they basically they they pretty much laid out the playbook that you know literally like starting less than a year later, countries around the world were doing, especially the United States, which was they said okay in the next downturn, interest rates are already so low, so you know cutting interest rates is not going to be very effective. And so we're going to have to go direct. We're going to have to have more fiscal spending uh, up to potentially even including helicopter money. 
But they said, okay, this the risk there is that it could be somewhat inflationary. Uh, and if, if rates go up, that could offset some of the benefits uh, or all the benefits of that fiscal spending. And therefore, you'll need some sort of, you know, quote unquote, soft coordination between the central bank and the fiscal authorities where the central bank is willing to hold rates low, even if you get that, that period of inflation. And it's, it's, it's uncanny if you go back and read that because it's literally, you know, they didn't, they didn't predict, predict a pandemic, obviously. But, you know, this, this period that we had is literally almost down to the line exactly what they saw playing out. And that, that's a topic that I started covering back in, say, 2019 or so. And then when it actually started to unfold in 2020, I was like, okay, here's the, here's the playbook. My own research shows that, you know, I, I expect the same thing. And so far now that we're, you know, deep into 2021, that is the playbook that we're seeing playing out where, you know, they're not going to, at least in, in countries that control their own currency, the, the chance that they're going to default on their own currency is very, very low. Uh, and so instead, what you'll see is that, you know, they'll basically spend what they need to, they'll monetize what they need to, and try to keep it going that way. Uh, and so generally, when you see uh, sovereign defaults, it's usually because they run into some constraint that they can't print. And so you see that, for example, in emerging markets, where let's say Argentina has dollar-denominated debt, uh, and for whatever reason, say that you know they they run into an economic problem, they don't manage things well, uh, and then they have they have too many dollars. They can't print dollars, right? They can only print their local currency, and so eventually they say, you know what, we 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 can't pay it back. Let's restructure this. Let's let's partially default on this. And let's let's reorganize this and try again, right? So that's a sovereign default. Another one would be, for example, uh, the United States in the 70s. Uh, you know, we backed our dollar by gold, uh, and so we can't print gold. We had a finite amount of of gold in reserves, which is actually, which at the time was going down pretty quickly, uh, and so they they defaulted on the fact that the dollar was backed by gold, uh, but they didn't, of course, default on on say the nominal value of, of treasuries. Uh, you, you basically just got you know partially inflated away. You're defaulted on what it means to own a treasury or what it means to own a dollar, uh, but the actual dollars, the, the treasuries themselves, were not defaulted on, and so. You know, basically, they'll default on things they can't control, uh, but then they they will rarely default on things that they that they can control or that they can print. Yeah, really fascinating. And so maybe another way to come at this and just explain it, just for listeners who might not be as familiar. So as an example, there it's like they're trying to play this Goldilocks game of keeping not going too hard or too soft, because at the same time, if they print too hard, then they go into the more implicit default situation that you were saying, this idea that, oh, yeah, we'll still repay you this number of dollars, but the value is much, much less. Uh, And then on the other side, it's also that in various markets around the world, it's almost like they don't want equity uh, bear markets. (laughs) They don't want too much of number go down in various other, whether it's, say, in the Australian housing market context, they don't want the housing market to crash because they've let all these people bet their lives on housing market and on the housing market and now they don't want to let that go down either so then they're sort of playing this game of trying to keep interest rates low to keep stimulating things but at the same time have as you're saying the fiscal stimulus aspects uh, but they're trying to play this goldilocks game of not making inflation rise too high because that would scare everyone off uh, but then also not let markets crash because then that looks really bad on your watch too because if the stock market crashes or if the housing market crashes then that also looks bad as well agree disagree what do you think yeah that's that's the approach i mean even in that paper for example they were talking about the risk of it getting too hot and so they proposed different ways to kind of moderate it uh and so that's you know we're, we're seeing uh you know we, they didn't do that full playbook for that part but we are basically currently at the moment seeing that kind of moderate outcome 
Uh, we'll see how high it gets or how long it goes. But you know, at the current time, the, you know, there's still a lot of market participants that are saying, "Oh, it's transitory. It's due to, it's due to specific uh, issues." They also, of course, they have co- they have cover from the pandemic. They can be like, "Look, we had to do this because of X, Y, Z." Uh, and so, you know, there, there's all sorts of things that they can use to kind of make it look like it's it's pretty normal. Uh, and so, you know, from their point of view, they want a decent amount of asset price inflation. Uh, and then they do want a decent amount of, of just, you know, prices going up for consumer goods, uh, as long as it's not too hot or too quickly, uh, especially in certain areas like, say, food price inflation, uh, that can quickly lead to uh, you know, uh, a social unrest. And we're seeing that in emerging markets. In many cases, we're seeing it in Cuba, we're seeing it in Lebanon, we're, we're seeing it in a bunch of, of countries. Uh, and so that's, that's overall what they're aiming for. And one of the risks is that because over the past four decades, we've financialized the economy so much in many different countries, that if asset prices fall, that can actually reduce GDP. Because, you know, so many uh, uh, either people or organizations have their wealth tied up in assets. And both psychologically and just mathematically, if those asset prices go down, that can affect their level of consumer spending, which can then impact other companies' revenues, which can then mean they, they hire fewer people, they have less money to spend, and you actually can get a recession from asset prices going down. And so in the United States, we, t- we tend to hold a lot of our assets in our equity market, right? And so that that's one of our kind of pain points. Whereas in Australia, it's about the housing market more so. Uh, and so different markets have, you know, same with Canada. So different markets have their different areas uh, of assets that they that they have favored for, you know, one reason or another. For Canada and Australia, partly it's because of the, the Chinese buyer, the, the, you know, foreign buyer uh, that is, is committing capital to kind of prop up uh, those as well. So uh, whereas in the United States, we have a lot of foreign buyers of our equities. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, there's that pain point that they're, I think they're aware of. Uh, and so uh, it's going to be challenging for them to navigate that over the course of the next decade, because as prices is so high already, uh, while also debt is still very high. Yeah, I like that explanation around how they need asset bull markets <laughs> from their point of view to keep the, the quote unquote party going, because there are a lot of people who are reliant on that for their ability to keep on spending because, for example, they may have drawn against the equity on their home to take on another loan and using that credit to spend. Or they may be, uh, I know in the, I think in the US, there was this recent uh, bit of drama around this whole concept of buy, borrow, die, right? This idea that rich people who are just not uh, having, they don't take income into their personal name, they're just borrowing against their rising assets. So it's like, the smart people are essentially realizing, oh, I'm just going to put my wealth into this thing that's going up and I'm going to borrow against that. I'm going to collateralize against that. And, you know, obviously there are risks associated with collateralizing. And I mean, in the Bitcoin world, you can see a big price drop, but in things that are quite well-established large markets like equities, housing, that seems to be the tax efficient strategy that the wealthy people are employing. Yeah, exactly. We also see it the middle class with with uh, you know thirty year mortgages uh, tied to a property uh, in the S. And so uh, basically, the whole play there is that you know you benefit from the house going up in nominal terms, uh, while your, while your mortgage is is generally you know basically getting partially inflated away or just treading water with inflation. Uh, whereas housing house prices, if it's a decent piece of property, has generally gone up higher than the official CPI uh, metric. Uh, and so that that is the kind of thing we're seeing playing out. Uh, and so let's say, you know, someone, uh, you know, they have a big portfolio of equities, 
they're up middle class, let's say, uh, and and they're they're about to go on a vacation, uh, or they're planning on a big vacation. Well, you know, if asset prices crash, right, they'll they'll feel less confident in, in going to uh, on a vacation. They might downsize their vacation, or let's say they were going to buy a second car, you know, for for someone, and they say, you know, we we can't buy that car this year. Let's see what happens with markets first. Uh, and so whether it's whether it's their home equity, whether it's their portfolio. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of things that basically can, if those prices go down, can influence their spending, and then that trickles into the real economy and has all those all those kind of butterfly effects as it trickles through the whole system. Yeah, excellent. Um, and I saw recently you did a great piece on oil and gas. So you were basically explaining, I guess, some of the misconceptions out there because it it there's almost this. Uh, public perception of what energy markets are and how they work. And then there's that real, if you're an engineer and you're really looking at the numbers, there's that view. So could you tell us a little bit about what you were getting at and what, what people can learn from that idea? Sure. That was that was an exceptionally long article. So it's, it's, it's one of the more challenging ones to summarize. But overall, it, it kind of made the case for why oil and gas are unlikely to be phased out anytime soon. Uh, and also why their prices could be somewhat elevated, mainly because we're not we're not putting a lot of money into developing new supply, uh, while demand is still pretty persistent. Uh, and so, and there's a bunch, and then it kind of goes into a deep list of reasons as to why. Uh, and so that you know, a couple of reasons are, for example, you know, there's the idea that we're going to shift primarily to solar or wind. Uh, but of course, the big challenge there is that, as I showed in the article, historically, whenever humanity found new energy sources. Uh, there are two things. One is they were generally more dense energy sources, uh, and so you know uh, coal was more dense than wood. Uh, 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 you know oil is uh, uh, more uh, energy dense than coal. Nuclear is more dense than that, uh, and so we added these new energy sources, but we never actually reduced the old source. We just we just we reduced them as a percentage. We actually just kept adding new types of energy on top, uh, and so it's, it's very hard to actually remove yourself from a prior energy source, uh, and. Whereas now, you know, the idea that wind and solar, which are less dense energy sources, are going to come in, and we're we're just going to dis, uh, displace a large part of our previous energy stack, especially you know quickly, like let's say 10, 20 years, uh, you know, the probability of that is is so very low. Uh, and so basically, we have kind of fundamental challenges with energy density that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. And that doesn't mean that solar and wind can't be part of the energy mix. Uh, but you know, and they have their own downsides too. So, for example, we call them sustainable or clean energy. Uh, but you know, m- in many cases, they're not recyclable. Uh, they, they, you know, they they do take a lot of energy input. And so, you know, they're they're harvesting a sustainable source. So, solar is is renewable, wind is renewable. But the actual mechanical and electrical components to harness that energy, that's that's really not renewable. Uh, and so the article just kind of go went through all these different misconceptions about energy, uh, and kind of made the case why oil and gas are probably going to be around for quite a while, potentially with periods of elevated prices due to us not really investing in them. Uh, and also, uh, I, I kind of reiterated the fact that I, I think nuclear energy is a very strong energy source. That you know, I, I'm I'm kind of expecting that at some point the world's going to kind of more catch on to that. I, you know, we're starting to see rumblings. Uh, where it's starting to be a little bit more accepted in some jurisdictions, while other jurisdictions are still kind of, you know, looking to to gradually phase phase that out. And I think that's going to be a pretty big challenge in the years ahead. 
Back to the show after a message for the sponsors. Unchained Capital are providing a concierge onboarding program for those of you who are looking to upgrade to multi-signature. Now, this program is getting very popular and it's worthwhile talking about why. So there's this urgency to upgrade your Bitcoin security beyond custodians or single signature wallets. And with Unchained, you can go and create a collaborative custody wallet where you hold two of three keys. And so doing this, you're requiring multiple keys to spend your Bitcoin. So it ensures your Bitcoin savings are safe, even if you make a mistake, while still ensuring that you're always in total control. And so for people who are unsure, there's a concierge package. So the team will ship you to hardware wallets and they'll provide you personal one-to-one guidance to get you set up and set you up at your own pace. So go to unchanged-capital.com concierge and get $50 off with the promo code Levera. The link is in the show notes. Now, my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet is the cold card. So when you're new, you might be starting out with a phone wallet, but when it's time to upgrade, look at a hardware wallet like the cold card. The cold card is a specialized device that holds and holds your private keys and signs the transactions for your Bitcoins. You can use a micro SD card and air gap it as well. So this really increases your level of security. Coldcard offers all sorts of features like Seed XOR, a plausibly deniable means of storing secrets in two or more parts. So check out my recent episode with NVK where we talk about using that also. So if you want to order yours, go to coinkite.com and use the code Levera to order yours. And lastly, have you thought about backing up your Bitcoin seed? CypherGrid is a new product coming out from CypherSafe.io. This is the best value metal seed backup product in the industry. You get everything you need for $59. So don't just trust that piece of paper. That's not going to be fireproof, rustproof, and waterproof like all the CypherSafe products are. The CypherGrid has two stainless steel plates for all 24 seed words. The two plates are facing each other, so they hide your seed words. And it's held together by stainless steel hardware. You can lock it with a padlock. You get a tamper-evident seal provided and an automatic center punch provided. So go to cyphersafe.io and order yours with the code LEVERA to get a discount. Back to the show. Yeah, nuclear is an interesting one because it seems like the perception of big accidents like Chernobyl and the like have colored people's minds to be overly bearish or negative on nuclear. And despite the fact that if done correctly, it can be very, very safe and very, very efficient long term. Uh, but it's just maybe not as viable right now for a lot of the new nuclear projects to come online, which is why we're sort of the it seems like if you just looked, if you just read the news, you would get this impression of, oh, see, everything's wind and solar and we're never going to buy it. We're never going to do any coal and natural gas again. But it seems that the reality is quite different from that because there's still a need for baseload power. There's still a need for cheap and reliable, scalable energy. Yeah, with nuclear, I, I use the analogy of like airplanes. So, you know, people are, are kind of intrinsically more afraid to fly than to drive. Uh, and because, you know, air, flight is, it feels like it's out of our control. We don't understand it as much. Uh, and of course, every few years, there's like a huge crash that's on the new global news and it's terrible. Uh, but if, when you actually run the numbers, it, you know, if, if you're going a long distance, it's much more dangerous to drive. Uh, and so uh, we see that with, say, let's compare coal to nuclear. Uh, so, you know, coal is kind of our, it's kind of the enemy, you know, rather than the one you're, you're, you don't know. And so, for example, it's simple. It's been around for a long time and it, it is pretty damaging. It does a lot of, a lot of particulates into the air and those, uh, you know, are, are linked to all sorts of, of types of death. Uh, and so they, there's actually papers out there that estimate 
how many people die from air pollution that's related to coal, that's related to, uh, you know, kind of other types of fossil fuels. And that's somewhat measurable. And it's pretty, it's a pretty high number every single year. It's like, a, you know, 100,000 in the US, and then that can be you know, far higher globally. Whereas if you look at nuclear energy, uh, you know, th the number of people that have directly died from nuclear disasters is like a dozen or so, a couple dozen. And then when you actually, you know, the, the estimate for how many people were negatively impacted by the, by say Chernobyl and Fukushima, uh, you know, there's, there's a big range of estimates for what that number is, but even the high end estimates, uh, you know, throughout the entire, like say 50 year history of nuclear power, they're like less than like one year of like coal related deaths. Uh, and so it's one of those things where the, it looks, ends up being a lot like air travel, where you have these occasional horrific incidences. Uh, and yet the whole industry uh, is actually very safe compared to many of our other types of energy. And what I would like to see is, you know, those, the three, the three disasters that we've had, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, uh, and Fukushima, and of course they had different levels, the Chernobyl being the worst. Uh, those were, you know, even though they occurred in different decades, those were all built on 1960s and 1970s technology. Because, you know, we haven't really been progressing nuclear in the same way, kind of like how we haven't really progressed aerospace as much as we have, say, electronics. Uh, and so nuclear has just not, not been an area that we've advanced as quickly as we could have. And so you could have, for example, smaller nuclear reactors using 21st century technology to make them even safer than they historically have been and to reduce the probability of some massive incident. And I've actually, you know, I don't know if you saw the news uh, with Oclo and Compass Mining, where Compass Mining, there's a, there's a startup named Oclo, and they, they're trying to uh, basically popularize or, or deploy these much smaller nuclear facilities that, that, that they take the discarded waste of conventional nuclear facilities, and then they can actually run off that and basically get more juice out of, out of that. Uh, and so they actually partnered with uh, uh, Compass Mining that was on a press release where they're actually going to power Bitcoin mining with that. And, you know, the whole point there is that, you know, the downside of those small nuclear reactors is that, you know, when you're running a smaller facility, uh, you have kind of lower margins. And so they were actually, there's, you know, I, I read up about it. They were kind of proposing uh, trying to run these unmanned. But of course, when you hear about an unmanned nuclear facility, you're like, I, I don't know about that. I don't know if you want, I don't know if regulators want to let that happen. Uh, so you basically, it's better, you have to kind of co-locate that with something that's using that power that is providing security and providing uh, personnel. And so, of course, if they co-locate with Bitcoin miners, uh, they basically have on-site security and they're able to provide that power. And so you can have flexible arrangements where, you know, a town needs power. Uh, they do business with Oclo. Oclo comes in, builds one of these facilities. But let's say that town only needs half the power. Uh, well, like Bitcoin miners uh, co-located with that power plant can soak up some of the remaining power and help make that project uh, profitable. And so I'm hoping we'll see more more types of that kind of innovation uh, because you know we're going to need a, a bunch of different energy sources going forward uh, to be both clean uh, and and something that we can you know keep getting more of uh, and that is is you're basically cost effective and clean as possible. Yeah, that's a great uh, example there. Now Compass Mining is actually a sponsor of my podcast, so certainly oh nice, uh, good one. Um, and so I think the similar dynamic, just like what you were saying, this idea of like a plug factor, if you will, that you can use where, where there is energy that can be created in an area. And uh, I think it's another good example that's related is hydro and geothermal that potentially can have a similar kind of story where it might be only able to be made in certain places. And so they can go set up a facility there, draw that, use that power 
and then any excess power that's not being used by the local town because you can't transport it cheaply or easily, then you can people Bitcoin miners would be happy to go and set up there and start contributing to the network security while also helping make these projects viable where otherwise they may not have been. Exactly. And, and so, you know, we've seen, for example, Bitcoin's been very good at sucking up excess capacity from hydroelectric dams in China uh, and then also in, in Quebec, uh, for example. Those are just two that come to my head. Uh, and then with geothermal, I mean, you know, we'll see what kind of innovations come there. I mean, that's, that's you know, it's one of the cleanest types of energy with the downside being that it's you know, historically only suitable in certain types of areas. You know, there are proposals for deeper types of, of geothermal uh, that can tap into a, a deeper layer uh, to get heat and therefore be, be you know, uh, useful in a, in a much broader range of geographies, but kind of like uh, nuclear power, there just hasn't been a lot of money going into that space to really kind of spearhead that type. But we are seeing developments uh, that might make geothermal, uh, you know, potentially a more widespread use of power. Yeah. And also, I'd love to touch on some of the examples you raised in that piece. You spoke about the examples of Germany and also of India. So Germany has this example where they've been really trying to do all the renewable stuff. They've been really trying to do the wind and solar. And it seems they're even trying to mandate that car manufacturers transition to using electric cars. And you see like Mercedes come out with like, you know, an electric AMG version and things like that. Uh, but at the same time, you quite rightly point out that, well, hang on, they still need baseload power. You know, it's not like <laughs> you can just go to this wind and solar um, only. And so that aspect of it was really interesting to me. Could you explain a little bit around that? Germany has one of the, the grids, the electrical grids that is, uh, you know, the most focused on wind and solar. Uh, but even there, as you point out, they need baseload power. Uh, and so they use a lot of coal for that. Uh, and they've also had a, a decent chunk of nuclear. Uh, and after the, the uh, Fukushima incident, uh, the, uh, in addition to Japan taking some of their reactors offline, they actually had Germany uh, decide to start phasing out some of their nuclear nuclear power plants. Uh, and so the interesting thing there is that you know they, they could have phased out coal more rapidly instead. Uh, and so they actually chose nuclear over coal. So they don't, it's like, there's always a trade-off when you make a decision like this. So like, hey, we want to get rid of dirty nuclear or risky nuclear. And so we'll leave the coal in place longer. Like people don't hear that second part. Uh, and so they, they could have kept the nuclear and phased out coal more. And so you've actually seen, despite all of the growth we've seen in, in German uh, wind and solar, uh, their coal usage is pretty much flat, whereas they could have they could have reduced it. And there's even been papers showing that actually, that actually had kind of measurable uh, uh, death counts most likely in Germany because, as I pointed out, there you know the number of deaths related to coal and and other particulates is somewhat measurable, uh, and so that you know some non-zero number of people potentially died due to the decision to phase out nuclear instead of coal, unless of course the improbable event that one of those nuclear reactors would have otherwise uh, blown up or something, and so yeah, you have that kind of um that outcome there, and then two, it's you know one is. You know, when you look at overall energy consumption, ele electrical grids are only like 20% of our total energy consumption. And so we often think of it, most of our electricity coming through the grid, but that's never really not the case. You know, the, of course, automobile energy and then also energy that we use in like all sorts of diesel equipment to go mine our commodities. And so we, we basically, as, in terms of how much energy is used by the world, uh, only about 20% of it is grid. Uh, and so Germany is actually still using quite a bit of, of fossil fuels for all their other industries, all their cars, all their manufacturing. Uh, and it just so happens that their grid is, is somewhat more solar and wind focused. Uh, and so, you know, 
basically it is a decent region for wind power, for example. So it does make sense to make make use of wind when you have it. Uh, but you know, I think over time, basically they're going to find that you know they're they're already they had a period where they had a, a big energy surplus, right? So they're producing more than they're using. But ever since they've kind of accelerated that wind and solar approach, that that surplus has been diminishing. Uh, and so I, you know, they're over as you kind of project that uh, they're in a in a case where you know they're going to need baseload power. And it's just a question of do they want it to come from coal? Do they want it to come from nuclear? Do they want it to come from natural gas? Uh, you know, we'll see what direction they go in. Uh, probably some combination of the above. Of course, ideally, you want to phase out the ones that are say say more dirty or or, or less safe than other ones. And a contrasting example I use. Or similar examples, India. And so India, for example, if you look at how much solar capacity they've installed, uh, it's this big exponential increase. We, they, they've, they've, you know, every year they've been dramatically increasing how much solar capacity they install. Uh, and it, you know, it makes for great visuals. Uh, but then if you look at actually how much coal capacity they installed, it actually dwarfs how much solar capacity they, they installed. And so on a percentage basis, solar was growing faster because it was growing from a very small base. Uh, whereas their coal... Uh, grid a slower percentage, but because the coal uh, is like the vast majority of their grid power, uh, the fact that it grew at a at a decent percentage meant that that actually was a a, a much larger uh, absolute addition to their grid over the past you know five ten years than solar. And so that that's an example of the challenge you have when even if you find a new energy source that you want to go ahead and add to your grid, it's very hard to replace prior energy sources, especially because a, a market like India. Is growing more quickly, uh, and so they generally have a preference for fast turnaround energy sources, of which coal is is kind of you know well suited. Whereas Germany, because they already have most of their energy needs met, they're able to invest in longer projects, uh, and so you, you kind of have those different dynamics in different markets. Yeah, great explanations there, and as it's probably fair to say that over human humanity's history. Our story is being able to use more energy so that we can do more. So as you say, once we've st- found an energy source, we're very unlikely to turn it off unless it has some really horrific uh, health impacts and we've got a better alternative. I mean, maybe an example would be in some parts of the world where people don't have access to energy, they're using wood and burning the wood inside <laughs> inside a home. And so that can be very bad from a health standpoint. So people... You know, if they can transition over to a better energy source, they will. But if not, well, they would rather have that because then at least they can they can cook food instead of not being able to do that and that sort of thing. Um, and it's a really interesting point as well around the decision of which one we're going to use because there is, you know, just like with air pollution and maybe even concepts that people don't like to think about, like this idea of statistical value of a life, which is used in insurance calculations as well, where effectively do have to think about these trade-offs because... All life is precious, but they still have to think about how many resources they're going to expend to save more lives in this, that, or the other area. And so to the point around electricity, it's also that, or energy as well, as you rightly point out, that we have to look at what is going to enable all of these other things, right? I guess the the Alex Epstein point to make here would be that, yes, coal has all these, it can have all these negative pollution impacts, but on the whole, it's enabling all these people to produce and to eat and to live and to do all these things that they otherwise would not be able to. And as you rightly point out, in, say, countries like India, there's a definite, there's a demand, there's a huge demand for energy. There's a need for that. And a, a really funny point, and you made this point in the article as well, is that sometimes the developing the developed world is outsourcing production of things into the developing world and 
and effectively saying, oh, I'm just, I'm going to look more green myself, but you do all that dirty work using coal and natural gas, right? Yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a kind of a balance sheet trick we've done over the past 25 years. Where let's say the United States, for example, if you look at our overall energy consumption, it, it's, it's pretty flat. It hasn't really gone up that much. Uh, and so we've been able to, to gradually phase out some of our coal and things like that, which is, I think is a good thing. Uh, you know, because coal, by by many metrics, is is among the dirtiest sources, uh, and so you know our energy mix looks you know pretty flat there. We say, oh look, we're keeping our carbon emissions in check. We're we're, we're doing all this, but then the the part that they're leaving out of that calculation is that over those 25 years, we've radically expanded our our trade deficit, uh, particularly with China, but also other emerging markets and and other countries. Uh, and so China, you know, we we basically shipped our you know we kind of gradually shipped our manufacturing chain over to China. Uh, and that's very coal heavy. Uh, it's very energy intensive in general, regards to what type of energy source you're using. And so uh, part of, you know, China's developing on its own. So it's, it's increasing its, its say, middle class uh, quality of, of life. But in addition that, you know, part of the way they've done that is that they become a big manufacturing hub along with other countries in, in parts of Asia. Uh, and so they've, they've, uh, we, we basically outsource some of our energy usage to those countries. So it's off of our balance sheet. And so we say, look, you know, we're, our, our grid's pretty clean. Uh, we've managed to keep our carbon emissions in check. And look at China over there burning all that coal. Uh, but, you know, a lot of that coal, a big chunk of that is actually coming back to us in the form of all the things that they're they're physically making for us, which is, you know, all that energy expenditure and all the, uh, the raw materials that go into that. Uh, and so, you know, it's really one individual country is sometimes capable of flattening out uh, their energy demand uh, and also reducing some of their dirtiest sources of energy like coal. Uh, but it's very hard for the world as a whole to do that because that means essentially that you'd be you'd be flattening it out without also outsourcing it to somewhere else uh, if the whole world kind of, you know, to say flattened out its energy usage. Uh, and so those are two very different comparisons. And so I think it's important, you know, when we're talking about the future of global energy, uh, it's much harder to flatten that out uh, than it is that we've seen in some of these developed countries where they managed to flatten out uh, their energy demand. Yeah, really fascinating to think about. It reminds me as well of when people talk about, say, tax policy historically in, say, even in the US as an example, there are examples where the total tax take as a percentage of the economy sort of stayed the same, even though the tax rate has varied. Because in practice, what would happen is people might use different accounting techniques or tax uh, you know, strategies. And effectively, the amount of tax take that the government would receive was staying roughly constant. And it's a similar kind of idea here, even in energy, right? So this idea that we're trying to, in some countries, the more developed countries, we're trying to say, oh, look how clean we are. We're, you look at you, you're dirty, you're doing all this dirty stuff. But the reality is, it's more just like, globally, it hasn't actually changed that much. So it's a kind of interesting action and reaction example there. Um, but yeah, also another area I really want to chat with you about is uh, stable coins, right? So obviously some of us, you know, now some listeners might get annoyed. We're talking about stable coins. I want to hear Bitcoin stuff, but I, I think there are interesting impacts onto the traditional banking system coming out of stable coins. Uh, my recent episode with Caitlin Long and, uh, some conversations around the space as well. I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on this idea of stable coins impacting the traditional banking sector money market funds. So we are seeing a, a rapid, uh, you know, shift towards stablecoins. I mean, we've had pretty rapid growth uh, in in that space. 
Uh, and so it is becoming large enough that it's a it's a macro you know phenomenon now. It's not just a few billion here and there. It's like a hundred billion dollars of stable coins. Uh, and you know uh, you had Caitlin on your program, and so she could she's uh, paying a lot more attention to that space than I am. She's a lot more qualified to talk about that. So I would actually reference. I would say people should go check out that episode. Uh, and so there's all sorts of kind of those intricacies to look at. Uh, but overall, I think what we're basically seeing is, you know, you know, for anyone that's kind of used stable coins or is kind of active in the in the in the digital asset ecosystem, those are just generally much faster payment rails than we see in the legacy system. Uh, and so basically, there's that there's that kind of one way adoption, right? So it's kind of like once you start using them, you don't go back uh, where possible to the previous legacy system. Uh, and so, you know unless regulators kind of slow that down, you're likely to get that continued migration uh, to stable coins. And we're even seeing, for example, you know, Facebook and, and Diem, right? So so it was, it was the Libra project. Then they had some regulatory scrutiny. They kind of, you know, they, they retooled that a little bit. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately what that is, is, is another stable coin approach. Uh, and, and, and so it's one of those like highly regulated stable coins uh, that, you know, it can apply certain technologies associated with blockchain to, to say making payments uh, you know quicker or programmable in a way that can say be, be more beneficial than the current system uh, but of course it doesn't solve the same problems that Bitcoin solves right so it's not like a, a permissionless trustless decentralized system uh, but it can still have certain advantages over the existing uh, rails uh, that have been around you know we've been kind of iterating on rails uh, for a very long time like Fedwire, and that's like a hundred-year-old system, and you know, they as technologies come across, I mean, they say, okay, now we made the radio, uh, and now we, you know, we we added layers of technology to that, so we're not actually like you know bringing wheelbarrows full of cash or gold between banks anymore, uh, and so, but it's still fundamentally the kind of the same types of rails, whereas stable coins are kind of a a whole another kind of uh, set of rails uh, that kind of exist alongside that and, and kind of disrupts that potential a little bit more. We're also going to see questions around how is that going to interact with central bank digital currencies for the countries that choose to launch that uh, in the in the kind of the near term or the I should say like a, an intermediate term. Uh, and so, for example, if you look at DM's white paper, they reference central bank digital currencies, and in their view, they kind of you know potentially view themselves as like an overlay on top of central bank digital currencies, where you know they can kind of like how if you look at say Circle, you know, like a stable coin they will ostensibly hold a certain amount of reserves uh, and then they'll issue tokens that are backed up by those reserves. Whereas something like DM, you know, if you have central bank digital currencies, they can have an account with the Fed or however that system's going to work where they hold central bank digital currency units, then they issue their own token. And those tokens are, say, more programmable, more flexible than the central bank digital currency units are. Uh, and so they're you're potentially kind of a private sector extension of central bank digital currencies, and so this this field's still very new, uh, and it's you know only in the past year that it reached macro significance. I mean, I remember I wrote an article uh, earlier this year uh, when I was touching on 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 Ethereum and kind of you know critiquing that to some extent. Uh, but one thing I pointed out in that article was I you know I do think that stable coins, the volume of stable coins is going to increase uh, pretty rapidly, and since then it actually it actually like tripled. Uh, in, in say you know seven months or six months whatever the case may be and so you know it is a very fast growing space that you know even a year ago was was much smaller not really on regular regulators radar in the way it is now yeah excellent comments there and so do you see it like we're going to just see continued growth in that sector and we're going to see a lot more competition come into that space because right now obviously the big names people like tether 
do you see it like we're going to see more and more people starting their own stable coins or doing stable coins for other current currencies as well, not just the US, maybe euro uh, stable coins or others? We are seeing we're interested in that. I mean, um, you know, I've been covering, you know, Spurbank is interested uh, of Russia of doing, you know, uh, stable coins there. Uh, you know, it's generally a pattern we're seeing around the world is that many major currencies, they want to do stablecoin implementations of them. Even the, the DM project, uh, you know, seeks to have stablecoins of multiple currencies around the world. Uh, they want to expand the number over time. Uh, and so I do think that, you know, barring certain regulatory actions, that is likely to increase. Um, and, you know, that their use cases can rotate. So, you know, historically, stablecoins were primarily used within exchanges, especially the offshore exchanges. Uh, and so, you know, we're starting to see more regulatory crackdown on like Binance uh, and some of those offshore exchanges. Uh, and so that that could potentially, you know, I'm just hype, like a, a kind of estimating here, that could slow down the usage of, of Tether, for example, uh, whereas you could see other types of stable coins, like let's say DM or other ones uh, that are more intended for use as a, as a payment mechanism. Uh, they could start to to take off more. Of course, we've also seen algorithmic stable coins, some of them more successful than others. Uh, you know, we could, for example, have lightning channel stable coins, right? There are a couple of people talking about those. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's still a lot of innovation happening in the space, uh, both in terms of the number of currencies that could be used and the mechanisms used to do that. So either custodial ones or synthetic uh, algorithmic ones. And there's a bunch of different options depending on what the use case is. So I think that the long-term shift to watch primarily is the idea of stablecoins primarily being for uh, trading as a unit of account uh, towards uh, if they actually start to become more used as a, as a medium of exchange uh, you know, in the broader economy. Right. And so people may here and there use them as method of payment or to potentially get around, say, the difficulties of trying to use the normal system to do wire, wire international wire payments and things like that. But fundamentally, it still doesn't compete with what Bitcoin does, right? Bitcoin is special and, and for good reason. I think this is another thing where it's worth reiterating that eGold and Liberty Reserve were shut down for a reason. And that's Bitcoin was built the way it was to be permissionless for a reason. And so stablecoins while they may have a little bit more of a superficial convenience to them, they just fundamentally do not have the same characteristics that, say, Bitcoin has and Bitcoin's uh, overall network effects that are growing. And uh, on uh, the B word today, I saw you, well, it was a pre-record, I think, but I saw you made a great presentation there as well, talking about some of the network effects. And you were talking there about how, uh, you know, comparing Bitcoin's security versus uh, other um, coins out there or the security of Bitcoin versus, say, the fiat system. Um, I'd love if you could touch on some of those aspects of Bitcoin's network effect that's growing. And uh, I think you also had a great explanation around the whole MySpace Bitcoin aspect as well, because that's a common one that people hear. So how do you answer that? Uh, let's say if somebody asks you, the, is Bitcoin MySpace question? Yeah. So yeah, a couple different questions there. I guess going back to the root, you know, I totally agree that Bitcoin is just fundamentally different than stable coins and things like that. And that's, of course, because Bitcoin is a decentralized permissionless bearer asset. Uh, so it can be used non-custodially, non-trustfully. Non-trust, uh, uh, and so that's the whole point there. Whereas if you're using, say, a stable coin, you're relying on them to uh, custody it for you, assuming it's that custody type of stable coin. And in addition, they can, you know, they can blacklist certain addresses. Uh, and so they can actually, you know, they can, they can make them less permissionless than they seem. 
Uh, and so whereas, whereas Bitcoin's, you know, pretty much the unique asset that doesn't really have those issues. Uh, and so, you know, overall, it's, it's, it's a fundamentally different asset class. And that's why we can monitor what's happening with stable coins for other purposes. But I, I just fundamentally don't consider them a competition to Bitcoin. They're, 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 they're more of a competition to the way that the current system runs. So, you know, if I was Western Union, I'd be concerned about stable coins. Uh, and lightning for that matter but you know there's 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 a couple different attack vectors there if you're if you're a legacy system that's relying on high fees uh now yeah going into bitcoin's network effect this is a topic that i've i wrote an article about um uh, you know it, it's something that i've been emphasizing partly because it was it was one of my initial questions with bitcoin uh and so you know uh, my my initial question with bitcoin when i was kind of looking at it uh years ago was okay so it's it's a great technology but these other systems can come and copy it uh, and so it's open source. These other entities can copy it. And so what makes Bitcoin special? Uh, and so, of course, one is the fact that it's well-designed. Uh, it had a really good path dependence. It's leaderless. Uh, so there's all sorts of those qualities. But then in addition, uh, it has the it has the widest network effect. And of course, in, in, in blockchains, your network effect is, is your usage is heavily tied to how secure you are, like how much hash rate you have, how sufficiently decentralized you are. And so in that sense, Bitcoin is large enough, decentralized enough, well-designed enough that it's very, very, very hard for uh, you know other blockchains to come and try to dethrone Bitcoin, at least in the, in the things that Bitcoin is aiming to do. And uh, so I wouldn't be shocked if, say, that the total stablecoin market cap were to exceed Bitcoin for a period of time. Who knows? Uh, but it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's fundamentally not competing with the same thing that, that Bitcoin's competing in, as an example. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the overall just, you know, the fact that anyone can run their own full node, uh, the fact that you can send permissionless payments, uh, and then the fact that, you know, compared to some of the hard forks or compared to some of the other protocols, uh, you know, you're, you're more decentralized and you're more assured when you send a large payment. Of, of its security and its ability to arrive in that location. Uh, and then in addition, I didn't get into it in that in that B-word presentation, but also the Lightning Network adds a whole nother network effect onto the base layer. And this is something I've talked with Elizabeth Stark about, uh, you know, my view that essentially, uh, you know, Lightning makes even more use of network effects than Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a broadcast network, uh, whereas Lightning is a channel by channel network. And so it's very, very reliant on having adequate liquidity uh, and so the more that we build that Lightning Network on top of Bitcoin, that further strengthens the network effect, both of Lightning and of Bitcoin, and kind of creates more and more usability in the network. And then once you have usability, you can bring in more apps and more users, which then further increases liquidity and usability and keeps that flywheel going. And so I'm, I'm really optimistic with the development path that I'm seeing Bitcoin using. I really like that layered approach uh, because that's the best approach where you know every layer has trade-offs, but when you when you use each layer for the purpose that they're designed for, you can greatly minimize the trade-offs uh, for your use case. Uh, and so uh, I think that overall development path is going really well, and I'm really excited to see it catch on. I mean, I I, I tweeted back in January that I think people are sleeping on the Lightning Network, uh, and 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 you know I basically said that I think it's starting to reach critical mass, both in terms of liquidity and applications. Uh, and you know, since then, it's all the capacity denominated in Bitcoin has almost doubled on the Lightning Network. Uh, and so, you know, it went from like 1,000 to like 2,000 Bitcoin uh, on the public part of the Lightning Network. Uh, and so, I, I, I think that that's you know, if you look back five years from now, I think the capacity is going to be much higher than it is uh, currently. And I think the number of apps using it is going to be you know just far larger than you can probably imagine right now.
Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of Lightning. I've done a lot of interviews on Lightning. Um, I guess uh, I'm curious, though, your view, because it seems that right now a lot more people are using Bitcoin as a savings technology and they're not as interested in the kind of medium of exchange aspects of it for now because it might be capital gains tax implications or it might be, you know, various other things. Uh, and so I'm not saying this to criticize Lightning. I'm, I'm myself a promoter of Lightning. But I'm curious your view there on, you know, do you view that as a conflict or do you see that as like a, it's just another whole network effect that we're growing this whole thing? I, I think it's a, lo- it's a long-term planning, right? So you want to build out before you need it. Uh, and especially because as we saw, you know, one of the criticisms of Lightning is that it was going slow, that it wasn't just like, it's not like you turned it on day one and it was usable right away. And that's because it took time to build up the liquidity in addition to the development work needed to do. Uh, and so it's inherently, say, a slower project than, say, like a DeFi project, like uh, making a decentralized exchange. It's as much, it's a slower process, but it's kind of like a train where it starts slow, but then the momentum's really, really strong. Uh, and so... I'm glad that they got that, you know, going over the past three years, uh, because you know, eventually, you know, as on-chain fees potentially grow, uh, you know, you need that Lightning uh, network uh, more and more if you're trying to do small transactions. Even if, even if all you're trying to do is take your coins off of exchanges and things like that. And so, you know, there, there's all sorts of use cases there. But then, you know, from another point of view. You know, people in emerging markets can make better use of Lightning potentially, right? So, for if you're doing smaller transactions with with you know the need for smaller fees, that can matter. And so, for for me, I, you know, I've not been someone who's who's rushed into making extensive use of Lightning uh, because I've been primarily interacting with Bitcoin as a store of value asset, uh, whereas many other markets, like we saw, for example, in El Salvador, uh, you know, their first touch with Bitcoin was largely Lightning related, uh, and so. And another topic is that, you know, I think in the intermediate term, you can use Lightning as a, a monetary network without even relying on the on the asset. Uh, and so we've seen that with Strike, for example, where you can you can do dollar to Bitcoin to dollar payments uh, in a way that is is faster uh, and cheaper than say Western Union for, for remittances and things like that. And eventually you could have you could have dollar to Bitcoin to Euro payments or Euro to Bitcoin uh, to Aussie dollar payments. Uh, and so that's a that's a kind of a competing way to do efficient payments compared to stable coins even. Uh, and so or, or even interacting with stable coins, you could do stable coin to lightning to stable coin type of payments. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's another tool in the tool chest uh, to basically give developers uh, abilities to just fix things that, that, you know, kind of find efficiencies in the current system and to iterate them as much as possible to make them cheaper, faster, better, you know, especially for people who those fees are, are a very meaningful part of, of what they're what they're dealing with. And so I think that, you know, I don't view it, I don't view any sort of conflict with Lightning, especially because not everyone has to use it, at least not at the current time. It's just it's something that it's there for people that need to use it or want to start trying it out, but then it's not needed for other people. And in addition, you know, I think it was it's like a couple months ago I was on a clubhouse and you know there there we talked about that a little bit. And there are people that you know they say are are heavily uh, in the Bitcoin space, and a lot of their revenues denominated in Bitcoin. And so they actually do spend some of their Bitcoin because you know they have they have to live their life. Uh, and so you know for someone like me, my income's in fiat, and then I can choose what percentage of it do I want to put in Bitcoin. And it just kind of, it's kind of a one directional thing there. But if I was getting most of my revenue in Bitcoin. I'd be say saving some of my Bitcoin, but then I might want to spend that where possible. And so right now in most countries, 
the tax burdens around around spending your Bitcoin are not great, right? Because you're, you're triggering a taxable sale. Uh, and, you know, most people, I, I have good access to credit cards and PayPal and other fairly cheap forms of payment, uh, you know, whereas that's not an option in many countries. Uh, and so I think it's one of those things people that need it should should explore it. Uh, and even people that don't need it, I think it sh- they should be happy the fact that developers have been working on it, building it out uh, for the people that do need it. And, you know, there there's a chance that we'll need that in the future. Yeah, of course. I agree wholeheartedly there. And it also enables, it opens up new possibilities. For example, people might want to start business models that are not otherwise feasible or profitable or people might be setting up online who knows lightning poker gambling websites or some other betting website and it's all done with lightning payments and i think some of those do exist already but of course these could grow over time and the experience that they could offer with lightning might be far greater than they would otherwise be offering if they were having to do everything bitcoin on chain right so yeah probably a good spot to wrap up here lynn have you got any closing thoughts for listeners and where can they find you of course i will link to the oil and gas piece in the show notes but uh where can people find you online yeah no i think that covers it i I guess the last point i'd make is that you know a lot of it is about usability Uh, and so in early technologies you know you start out it something's less usable you have to be somewhat tech savvy to use it and eventually you know a lot of those details are kind of worked out so that you know the end user uh, is not at, is not worrying about some of those underlying technical details. And so, you know, with Lightning, you know, it, it progressed and it's, it's over time, it's becoming more usable. So is Bitcoin, the base layer, and, you know, all these, all these kind of things that abstract uh, some of the technical details from us. And so it's, you know, it's one of those things, that, again, you want to start it before you need it. And so by the time that you need it, it's usable. It's simple. It looks. It looks like the the types of systems we're already used to interacting with. Uh, and so that that's how I view it. Uh, and so uh, yeah, I'm available at lindalden.com for people who want to check out my work. I, I cover multiple asset classes, including Bitcoin, uh, and I'm on Twitter at lindaldencontact. Uh, and so I, I really appreciate you having me on again. Yeah, Lynn, it's great to chat with you. You've always got a lot of interesting points of view and you're very well researched across multiple fields. You know, you're not uh, just Bitcoin only. Uh, in in your analysis so it's always a pleasure to chat with you thank you for joining me so if you're enjoying the show remember to leave me a review on the platforms like itunes as that helps new people find me get the show notes stefanlevera.com 294 and i will see you in the citadels mm-hmm.